Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 15 in the book of John, entitled, Is This Man the Christ? Where we discuss John 7, verses 25 through 52. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we're coming to really the second half of a passage that we began looking at last time. Uh, and I wonder if you could just kind of give us an overview. What, what will we see in this passage uh, through uh, verse 52 as we look at it today? Well, Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem for one of the three great feasts that required all the Jewish males to go up three times a year. And this is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, there's some back and forth. Jesus was an extremely divisive controversial figure. And Jesus himself said he would be that way. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So there's bickering, there's a division and argumentation going on, and Jesus is right in the midst of it, and he is making the case that he actually is the Christ, the Son of God. But at the center of this is one of the sweetest gospel promises you'll ever find, and I can't wait to talk about that. Rivers of living water flowing from within us. I look forward to talking about that. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead. I'll read the passage. Uh, again, we're looking at John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, 
Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Andy, we're picking up, like we mentioned, where we left off in this back and forth between Jesus and this crowd. Why were the Jews in the crowd surprised at Jesus in verse 25 and 26? Well, I mean, he's publicly there and they're already plotting to kill him. And so there's this sense of uh, basically silence means consent. The authorities were not shutting him down. They weren't dragging him away. And so they're like, who knows? Maybe the authorities have really concluded that Jesus is in fact the Christ. So they're just, they don't know what to do. And, they're, and they're, they're, they're having to deal with the Jewish authorities who are a dominant force in Jewish life. They're, they're making rules and regulations on everything, hand washings and, and interactions and what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. It was comprehensive and legalistic. And so they're like, well, what are they, what are they saying? What are they saying? What? It's like, well, judge for yourself, Jesus is saying. What do you see when you see me do miracles? When you see me heal a man born blind, which you'll do in chapter nine, et cetera, you, you come to your own conclusions. But they're trying to figure out the Jewish authorities, and they're saying, look, he's, they're letting him be public. They're letting him speak, so maybe they think he's the Christ. So they're going back and forth. They don't really uh, know uh, what to think. And then they start saying silly things. Like, we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Now, I don't know where they got that idea. Like, Jesus is going to descend from heaven instantaneously, kind of like the reverse trip of Elijah in the chariot of fire. And it's like, where did he come from? And we know he's, we're not gonna watch him grow up from a little boy. And so that just their ideas of the Messiah were messed up. And Jesus zeroes in on that when, when they say, we know where this man is from. And so Jesus answers, it's interesting here because I think in this verse, when he says, yes, you know me and you know where I am from, I actually would read it as sarcasm. Hmm. I, that's the way I would look at it. I think he's being sarcastic here. I think there's other evidences of Jesus being sarcastic. Uh, and Paul, the apostle, sometimes uses sarcasm, especially with the Corinthians. Hmm. Uh, he can be very sarcastic. The reason I think he's using sarcasm here is that they did not know who he was. Because Jesus will later say, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, or make it even more plain. John 16, three, he said the reason, he said the world will do these things, persecute, because they have not known neither the Father nor me. Hmm. He openly says they don't know me. So here when he says, you know me, I think he's being sarcastic, and you know where I'm from. The reason also I say they don't know is because look at the end of the chapter. What, what do you see there? Well, I think you, you see that he's talking about where he came from, uh, Galilee, but clearly we know from Scripture that yeah. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So yeah. proving their very point, but they had no idea yeah. exactly where he was born or who he really well, was. It's funny, the Bethlehem people weren't there at the first part in John seven twenty five or so. They come in later, right. and Herod's counselors knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. So it was just common biblical knowledge from Micah chapter 5. So they bring that up. But we know that Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. Right. So they're just messed up. They just don't have the right Do information. Do you know that? <laughs> and we'll get to this. I know at the end because we're getting out of order here. But we'll, we'll get to this. But the idea of a prophet doesn't come from Galilee or the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. They missed a significant prophecy in Isaiah 9. But we'll get, we'll get to that. Very good. Well, the crowd seems to indicate, like we just talked about, that they're sure they know where Jesus comes from. 
how does Jesus respond and why is this important for us as it relates to our own understanding of who Jesus is? Well, everything comes down to origin. It really just does. We need to know who Jesus is and where he's from. And so central to our faith in Jesus is that he descended from heaven of his own free will. He purposefully chose to become human. He was incarnate by his own choice. He entered the world, as he said to Pontius Pilate, to testify to the truth. So he was the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity who chose to become human and to be born of a virgin without a human father, fully man, but also fully God. The question of origin is everything. And if we understand who he is, then his authority is clear. He is God in the flesh, and therefore everything he says is right, and he has the right to say it. But if we start questioning if maybe his mother had been raped or she gave herself willingly to some Samaritan or some Roman, and they start questioning his origins even in a very disrespectful way when they say, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? Extremely disrespectful. So the question of origin is everything. And so if we understand that Jesus is begotten, um, not made, that he was born by the power of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, he descended from heaven as the Son of God to speak to the human race and to save us, then we uh, can answer the question of origin and of authority. Hmm. So at this point, why does the crowd try to seize Jesus and what kept them from being successful? (laughs) And this happens a lot, (laughs) right from the beginning of his public ministry. They want to kill him. And and I think there's a human factor and I actually think there's a demonic factor as well. I I think that Satan hated Jesus and wanted to kill him. And so he would, he would foment hostility and rage, but human beings who didn't want to hear that their deeds were evil hated him too. And so they're ready to lay hands on him. They're ready to kill him. Uh, but like happened right there at the beginning of his ministry uh, when he was preaching and uh, they wanted to push him off a cliff, he just moved right through the crowd. Other times he hid himself. Other times he just withdrew from the crowd. But here we don't really know how he gets out of it, but they seek to lay their hands on on him and nothing ever happens. So fundamentally, you can't kill Jesus if he doesn't want to die. And if today is not the day, he's not going to die. So the reason given in the text, as repeatedly happens in the Gospel of John, his time had not yet come, that everything had been measured out. Jesus would die in fulfillment of the Passover imagery at the exact right time, just in enough time so they wouldn't break his legs. But they would just lance him and water and blood would come out of his sides. The timing was meticulous in fulfillment of prophecy. The time hadn't come yet. So the crowd is, is seeking to lay hands on Jesus, seeking to arrest him, uh, but it doesn't seem like there's consensus in the crowd. I mean, did everyone reject Jesus here? And if not, what, what's going on? No, they say when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Jesus did more miracles than any human being that's ever lived, more miracles than anyone else in the Bible. It was, as I've said many times, a river of healings. Huge populations were healed every single day. (laughs) It wasn't a few, and the quality of the miracles was staggering, the things he could do. Like they said, he has done everything well. There was no case he couldn't handle. There was no fever he couldn't heal. There was no paralysis he couldn't address. He even raised dead people. There was nothing he could not do. And so what more evidence do you want when the Christ comes? Is it even possible he could do more miraculous signs than this man? And you think about the incredible power. I love the question you've asked before. Which of, which of Jesus' miracles was the hardest or which of his healings was most difficult for him? And, and the answer must be 
well, none of them. They none were, of them were all difficult. equally difficult, if you will, but also easy. That the power of Jesus was on display, and it seems like there's some here at least who understand and and see that, or at least ask the question. Yeah. So there's not consensus in any way that there's going to be a division, and and this is consistent Christian teaching. Jesus came to divide, and he's going to break people in two categories, believers and unbelievers. And the believers will live, and the unbelievers will die. And so there's going to be a separation uh, into wheat and weeds. There's going to be a separation of good fish from bad. There's going to be a separation of sheep from goats. There's going to be a separation of wise virgins from foolish virgins. This is just the consistent two-category separation. It's taught again and again and again. It's binary. Yes or no. Believe in Jesus or you don't. And so it's just that separation. Andy, do you think there's any encouragement for us here when we think about evangelism and the reality that this was one crowd hearing one message with two very different responses? Do you think there's some encouragement there for us as we consider sharing the gospel with a world that would reject and we hope some accept this message? Well, we'd have to say we our task is to cl- preach the message clearly and boldly and leave the results to God. We cannot measure by crowd reaction. Also, we know that the elect, the unconverted elect, behave a lot like reprobates, a lot like people who will end up in hell until the day they're converted. And so we don't, even if the entire crowd rejects, we don't know that the entire crowd might not ultimately end up in heaven. We're of good hope, and we just keep preaching. But in the meantime, they can treat us awfully badly. So Absolutely. Well, in verse 33, just a couple of verses later, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer. Do you think that Jesus was constantly mindful of the brevity of his life? And if so, how did this affect his ministry? Yeah, he was. I mean, he knew it was short. He knew, it, John's going to make it plain, when he goes out to be arrested by the Jews and by the Romans, led by Judas in John 18, it says Jesus knowing everything that was going to happen to him. And he says that right before the foot washings, too. He knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And he knew the timetable. So he knew his time was short. He says, I'm not going to be with you much longer. And again and again, we see this crowd or the officials or whoever Jesus' audience is seemingly misunderstand what Jesus is saying. What do they, what do they seem to think he's talking about here? What's one of the examples? Uh, I believe in verse 35, they talk about this dispersion. What are some of the, the ideas they have about how to explain what Jesus is talking about here? Well, he says, you're going to look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And we know what that means. It's heaven. And so, again, what this does, Wes, is it makes me incredibly thankful for my salvation because I believe that he will lift myself and you and others up to live with him forever in heaven. And so, apart from that, we could not. You think about the command given to the Apostle John in the exile in the island of Patmos, and there's a door standing open in heaven. And Jesus gave him a command, come up here. Well, Lord, unless you give me the power, I cannot obey that command. So I will not be able to follow him up into heaven unless he takes me there. And so, thankfully, again in John 14, he is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as we come to him, we will come to heaven. But he's saying to his enemies, where I will be, you cannot follow. You cannot get there. So you think about... um, you know, the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, with salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. You know, you're just up in this heavenly place and they cannot reach you. So 
He's saying, that's where I'm going to go. But they thought, well, where's he going to go? Is he going to go out to the dispersion? So this is the exile to Assyria and then Babylon, the two exiles. And they get scattered all over the Greco-Roman world. And so they thought maybe he was going there where Jews weren't supposed to go, but, you know, he's going to go preach to the Greeks. And that's not what he meant. So. Right. Clearly just one more instance of a misunderstanding. And really, I think, evidence again of that need for our eyes to be opened by faith, that spiritual sight that's given uh, for those who will believe. So this section that follows in verses 37 through 44, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, just one of the sweetest invitations, I think, in the New Testament. What is the relationship between this invitation, the end of the feast, and how did this invitation lead to further division amongst the people even sure. after he gave it? Well, we have to understand some background on the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, but they linked it to some prophecies in Zechariah uh, 13 and 14 about a fountain being opened up in the house of David, and this, this water would flow. And Jesus is saying, I'm the fountain. I'm, I'm, I'm the living water. It's very, it is beautiful. And you look at how bold he is. Reminds me of the woman uh, wisdom who, who uh, lays out a feast and calls in a loud voice. All you simple, come in and be with me. This is in, in Proverbs, um, you know, and she's personified. So Jesus is just standing up and in a loud voice, mm. he's inviting people. Everybody, you know, you think about Jesus' brothers, they're, you know, at the beginning of this chapter, like, you know, you're acting too quiet and too reserved. No, he's not. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is not shy. He's not hiding it. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. And so God sent Jesus into the world to be the light of the world. And he stands up in a public place and calls out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus' teaching is intensely self-focused. I am the fountain. I am the living water. You come and you drink and you'll be satisfied. So what this says to me is, is there's this sense of a deep thirst inside us. And, and the Holy Spirit works when he's converting us to faith in Christ, he works by beginning to show us our thirst. Something's lacking. We're hungering and thirsting for something. Something's missing. And then Jesus comes along and, and effectively says, I am what you are missing. If you are thirsty, come to me, and I will deeply, richly satisfy you. I will give you the living water that will flow. So to me, this is every bit as beautiful as the invitation he gives in, in Matthew chapter 11. When he, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so he offers rest there. He offers satisfaction, deep, refreshing satisfaction here. I love that. It reminds me of Psalm 23, speaking of a uh, great shepherd that's promised, the good shepherd that watches over our souls and the way that Jesus provides for his people uh, like a flock, caring for them and, and shepherding them and guiding them. And the image is complex here because we're going to come to Jesus and drink and then from us or from literally from our belly will flow rivers of living water. So that's water flowing out from us. So I think the way I would understand this is that you come to Christ and are satisfied and then you become a conduit of Christ to other people and they are satisfied. So that's through evangelism, through ministry. And the center image here uh, that John tells us is this is all referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like a river. There's a, a, frequently the image of the Spirit flowing, uh, that the Spirit descends or, or flows like, like a river 
or like a like a rain um, like frequently the verb is used poured the spirit is poured out and so there's this sense of a flow and so Jesus uh, flows in us and this is consummated with a beautiful image in Revelation 22 where in the New Jerusalem the river of living water flows clear as crystal down the center of the New Jerusalem and it flows from the throne so that's interesting because it combines the image. If, if, if anyone, uh, he, says, um, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, which means submit to my kingly authority, and you'll find rest. Well, what flow, where does the water flow from? The throne, the throne of the king. And if you stop fighting me, and if you're willing to do my will and to obey and live for my honor, you will be so completely at rest and satisfied. And then you'll be a blessing to everyone around you. From out of the midst of you will flow rivers of living water through the Holy Spirit. Wow. Wow. Well, this invitation evokes quite the response from the people. But I want to I want to zero in toward the end of the passage. Um, there's really some remarkable statements from three different sources. So in verses 45 through 53, we hear from the temple guards, the Pharisees, and Nicodemus. Yeah. And so the guards marvel, right? Nicodemus defends and the Pharisees condemn. What do these three reactions teach us about how the human heart responds to the person and work of Jesus? Well, I love the guards. The temple guards are sent out by the authorities to arrest Jesus. They go and listen to him and are struck dumb. They're dumbfounded. They're paralyzed. They're like, oh, wow. And then they go back empty-handed and it's like, well, where is he? And it's like, no one ever spoke like this man. Don't you love that? I mean, I just had the chance to preach on James and it says, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, uh, able to keep his whole body in check. Jesus is the only perfect man that's ever lived. And so they come back and they testify concerning Jesus' tongue no one ever spoke like him. And so the, the epitome, the perfection of wisdom. Jesus himself said, the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to listen to, Solom listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. You're going to hear better wisdom from me. Imagine hearing the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine hearing the parables. Imagine all of the beautiful teachings that Jesus gave. And so the temple guards come back, and they're staggered. They're dumbfounded. No one ever spoke like this man. Well, they want to arrest him anyway. It's like, what about you? You know, they start questioning this whole thing from Galilee. We got to talk about that in just a moment. But, but um, you know, they said, "Are you from Galilee?" And, and then Nicodemus, he's, I don't know where he's at yet, but he's like, "Well, at least we got to give him a fair trial." So he's defending him, and he's starting to risk his reputation. And they insult him, and so then you get that hostility, which is so much a part of John's gospel—the hatred of the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. So we see all that. Absolutely. So let's circle back to that Galilee statement yeah. that you mentioned. Let's, let's dig in a little there. You mentioned a prophecy earlier that yeah. they seem to miss. Uh, let's talk a little more about that. Tell, tell us yeah. what, what they're Isaiah missing 9, there. Yeah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walking in darkness. It says Galilee of the Gentiles right there in Isaiah 9. Matthew quotes it. That's how I learned it first. I learned it first there, not in Isaiah. And then Matthew points to it, and it's like, look into it. I love how they cocky confidence. You, you go ahead and look into it. Why don't you go do some study? It's like, well, why don't you do some study? Can I point a place in Isaiah where it talks about people walking in darkness have seen a great light? And so a prophet does arise out of Galilee, and his name is Jesus. 
And he's the one that it is spoken of. Um, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the prophet, and more than a prophet, who's going to rise out of Galilee. But I just think the arrogance here, look into it, and you'll find that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Yes, no one except Jesus. Mm. And so Jesus comes out of Galilee to be the light of the world. That's so encouraging. The promised Messiah coming. Well, any final thoughts, Andy, on this passage just as we really wrap up uh, John chapter 7 here? Yeah. I just, the the appeal is there so strongly. Uh, Are you thirsty? You know, then come to Jesus and drink. So that would be for us who have been Christians for decades. We still come to Jesus and drink and he refreshes us. It's so easy for us to turn away from Jesus and back to the world's polluted stream and drink from that nasty stuff and we find it's not satisfying. So for us, we need to repent from that worldliness and come to Christ again and through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, be refreshed again. But if you're not converted yet, it's just talking about coming to Him for salvation and finding life in His name. Well, thanks so much, Andy. Just encouraging to look at these verses together and to think about that invitation that is made to all of us to come and to drink. Well, this has been episode 15 in the book of John. Uh, We invite you to join us next time for episode 16 entitled, I Am the Light of the World, where we'll discuss John 7, verse 53 through John 8, verse 30. Thanks so much for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.